I've seen startups go under and perhaps the, the ex-CFO or maybe a temporary CFO be pursued individually for these indirect taxes under state law. You are listening to US Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with US clients. Welcome to Update 7 of US Tax. This is Heide Robson. Let's talk about US corporations with a new news of Anderson Tax in San Francisco and better understand C-Corp, S-Corp and LLCs and how to structure these. We originally published this US update. Let me just quickly check. We originally published this in October 2021. So we are getting much closer. So here is the original interview. If you do have a situation where you have a U.S. C-Corp as your blocker and it is owned by, say, an Australian corporation, usually there's going to be some transactions between the two. There might be an executive coming back and forth, etc. What we suggest is that the Australian corporation that owns the U.S. blocker do a minimal treaty-based filing in the U.S. that says, hey, I may have been there in the U.S. I may have some transactions going on with another entity that I own in the U.S., but based on the Australian-U.S. tax treaty, I don't have any permanent establishment with the U.S. It's a very simple return, and the, the importance of it is it gets the statute of limitations to start running for the period of time that you that the Australian entity owned the U.S. corporation. And in the future, in an exit, when you're facing due diligence and they see people perhaps going back and forth and have a question of, well, how, how much business was Australia really doing in the U.S.? Having the statute started and perhaps expired by that time pulls everything but the last three years that are open to the statute of limitations off the table for investigation when due diligence comes up. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to a special US episode of Tax Talks, US number seven. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Let's talk about US corporations with Anne Nunez of Anderson and San Francisco. When you speak to US CPAs and US tax agents based in Australia, a lot of them, maybe even most of them, don't touch US corporations. The moment you mention US corporations to them, they throw their hands up in the air and call, oh, hold on a minute, I only do US individual returns, 1040s, that's what I do. So the first question to Alice, why is that? What is so scary about US corporations? The corporations that we have in the present day, you know, these rules are historic. They started in the 1940s. They've changed continually until today. And so it's, it's caused a lot of confusion. It's caused a lot of complexity. And the complexity results if you have an error and a lot of penalties. And so people are hesitant to touch these items. And, and I will say the confusion is primarily caused by IRS rules that provide flexibility to treat limited liability companies as either corporations or flow-through entities like a partnership, you know, and so you can treat 
corporations as flow-through entities. You can treat corporations as entities that pay their own tax. And there's a lot of maintenance involved in, in perfecting the entity to get to its desired status and maintaining its desired status. Um, but, but once you get it up and running, there's a lot of complexity just in, in operating it because the IRS is really focused on enforcement in, over the past 20 years on cross-border transactions that take place between uh, U.S. corporations and their non-U.S. shareholders or non-U.S. subsidiaries. And so there's this whole body of reporting. Anytime you have a 25% or greater non-U.S. shareholder and anytime you have a controlled foreign corporation underneath the U.S. entity. And if any of that reporting is done incorrectly, it can result in some significant penalties as much as $10,000 per instance. And so, you know, you've got a lot of significant professional effort involved in getting this thing just operating within the parameters of the law. There's S-Corp, there's C-Corp, there's LLC. Is there anything else or do we just have those three? Well, those are the three that enjoy corporate status under federal tax law. But when oh, you get okay. down to state law and, and the issues of corporate governance and liability protection and that, you're either a corporation or a partnership. But that keeps it nice and simple. I was worried you ha would have a list of about 15 different forms for me. So I'm glad it's just three. No, it's just the IRS, you know, over, over different periods of time, they try to trip over themselves to make a dog a cat and a cat a dog. And now you have this confusing situation where you can, you can buy a dog and when you get home, you can label it a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It gets very complicated when you have non-U.S. citizens involved. For a U.S. citizen alone, they just go for an S-Corp? Yes, yes. And, and S-Corps can't have uh, a non-U.S. resident as a shareholder, so they're, they're off the table when you have non-U.S. shareholders. And S-Corporations, they're one of the oldest. I mean, I think they came around in 1946. And so they're really, when you see an S-Corporation, I think of it as a small mom-and-pop or family-run entity. And the first thing we need to do if, if they want to exit that entity is go through a lot of planning to wall that entity off because folks just don't want to deal with it. When you have the startups that we have today dealing in technology, uh, consumer products, et cetera, they're almost all going to be Delaware C corporations, whether they're owned by U.S. individuals or non-U.S. individuals. And you just said Delaware C corporations. The states present a confusing regulatory problem. So folks look at the U.S. and they think, if I'm going to do business in California, I should probably set up a corporation in California. However, the focus is generally not, you don't have to have a corporation that is resident to the state that you're operating in. You want to put the corporation as a resident of the state that has the most favorable corporate governance laws, and that's Delaware. And so usually what folks do is they set up a C corporation in Delaware. And to the extent that that corporation operates in other states, it's really just putting the, the secretary of state of those other states on notice that, hey, we're operating in your state now. So we have obligations and just, just telling you that. So is it quite popular to register a Delaware C Corp? So even if you're based somewhere else to just register it in Delaware, is that quite popular or is that more just when foreigners are involved or when foreigners come into the US, they then go for Delaware? 
No, even U.S. shareholders are going to look to Delaware as their resident for their corporation, uh, the resident state. And it's because the, the state governance laws are so favorable. It's easy to do transactions. It's easy to shift form if you want, if you're an LLC and you want to be a corporation or you want to be a partnership, you know, because your present state is the opposite of that. It's generally very easy just to file a single document with the state and accomplish what you need to. And is Delaware the only one? Because I could have imagined that quite a few other states would have followed because I can imagine it is a revenue earner for Delaware. Exactly. So there, there's a race to the bottom and other states are giving Delaware competition and they generally follow Delaware's model and that they'll adopt very similar statutes to Delaware, usually, you know, within months of Delaware adopting a change to their corporate governance laws. And also these states tend to be one of the, the six states where there is no corporate income tax. And so Nevada, South Dakota, those are the states that tend to be these race to the bottom in regards to corporate governance. And they're the ones that folks look to to incorporate it. Could we just very quickly go through those six? So it's Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota. Oh, gosh, I can never remember off the top of my head. Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota, uh, Florida has an excise tax. I'll have to get you a list. I apologize. I never know. I can never, I'm a typical American. I only speak English and I'd have a heck of a time naming all 50 states. It is actually seven. Seven U.S. states with simplified corporate government's rules. And these seven states are Nevada, Ohio, Washington, Texas, South Dakota, Wyoming and Delaware. So Al Nunes sent me the following text and he writes, Of these corporate haven states, no corporate income tax is imposed in Nevada, Ohio, Washington and Texas. But these states do have a gross receipts tax imposed on revenues or at the gross margin after costs of goods sold. South Dakota and Wyoming are the only states that impose neither a corporate income tax nor a gross receipts tax. Delaware imposes an income tax on business that operates there in Delaware. If you're merely incorporated in Delaware without any operations there, then no corporate income tax. And in addition, Delaware charges a franchise tax, which is not the end of the world. It ranges between 250 US dollars and 1000 US dollars per year. So most C-Corps are registered in Delaware or in one of the other five states with very simplified corporate governance rules. The S-Corp is really only popular for mom and dad operations. Why would a big tech not go into an S-Corp? Is it only because you can't have foreign shareholders or are there other limitations for an S-Corp? There's limitations on shareholders. And so you can only have U.S. tax residents as shareholders. And generally, you can only have 100 shareholders. It's meant to be a small business, and they drive that rule home with the 100 shareholder cap. The other problem with S-Corps is that I had mentioned maintenance of the entity as a problem before. There are many traps for the unwary where you can inadvertently lose your S-Corporation status and then become subject to tax at the entity level. You'd be treated as a C-Corporation. Because of that, when I have, I mean, I've had S-Corporations that did hundreds of billion dollars in business. But when the time came for them to exit and they wanted to go, you know, either a private equity, a private equity buyout or something else like that, 
we had to leave that S Corp behind. We had to set up a structure so that no one was buying a legal interest in that S Corp because no one will touch it regardless of the amount of due, legal due diligence that's performed on it. And so it makes exits very complicated and time consuming. So why would anybody go for an S-Corp? Usually it's it, it's a small mom and pop. It's a provider. Uh, they've got a small CPA provider, you know, and, and, and it makes sense if you're, you know, doing a few million dollars a year in a few states where it starts to grow large. And, and if you're always going to own it, if it's going to stay in the family, it has some benefits. If you can work within those constraints, it's not a bad entity. But being in San Francisco, we're the land of startups, we're the land of technology. We are the uh, port of call for inbound investment. And so usually none of those attributes are what we're looking for. Is an S-Corp less expensive than a C-Corp? No, no. The, the, the corporate governance uh, issues are the same. The tax reporting is probably the same. I, I take that back. The basic corporate reporting is the same. And they're at a parallel. If you had an inbound-owned C-Corporation, inbound Australia-owned one, they'd be about the same. What causes the complexity is all the additional information reporting that has to be done when you have transactions between a non-U.S. shareholder, a non-U.S. corporation, and a U.S. corporation. In the U.S., we have a regulatory scheme where state law creates the entity. And so for state law, you're either you know, a corporation or a partnership. The complexity all arises when you use LLCs because the federal government and the state governments for tax purposes make LLCs very flexible. Those can either be uh, treated as a corporation for tax purposes, or they can be treated as a partnership or a flow-through entity for tax purposes. It's a function that came out of the 1990s where there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, IRS finally provided some guidance and everybody was very comfortable that you could start off as a flow-through entity and later on become a corporation and derive some of the tax benefits inherent with that. But it's caused a great deal of corporate of, of confusion for folks that aren't very familiar with it now, because now if you form an LLC, if you have two owners, the default classification is you must be a partnership. If you have one order, owner, they say, well, it just it's a disregarded entity. It must not exist. And if you want to avoid any of those treatments, for example, in either one of those cases being treated as a corporation, you have to make an election within 75 days. And once you make that election, you're stuck with it for five years. So the confusion comes around where people see an LLC, they think it's the Swiss Army knife of entities that does whatever they want. And they don't file the right paperwork to get the tax treatment that they want. They don't maintain the right formalities and reporting to be consistent with the tax treatment that they wanted, or they were inconsistent you know, over time. Fortunately, the IRS has gotten so tired of people messing this up. If you forget to tell the IRS what you want to be treated like, but as long as you consistently treat yourself that way, they have a, a remedial process where you can fix a late election to be treated in that way. An LLC is a company for asset protection. So creditors attacking an LLC are attacking a company. But for tax purposes, the default is that it is either a partnership, if you have more than one shareholder, or it is a disregarded entity, what we would refer to as a sole trader. So it's basically just the individual. If you want the LLC to be treated as a company for tax purposes, you need to file an election with the IIS, 
within 75 days and that election is then binding for five years. Yes, yes. And thankfully, uh, the states follow the IRS procedures generally. There's a couple of states that don't even recognize S-Corps or, or, or excuse me, there's a couple of states that have little quirks, but generally the lawyers take care of all of that. Can an S-Corp invest into an LLC? So the first question you have to ask yourself is, what type of entity is that LLC for tax purposes? Is it a corporation or a partnership? Let's say it's a flow-through. It's a flow-through money. So, so yes, a corporate, an S-corporation can own a ownership entity in a flow-through entity. It can own an ownership entity in another S-corp. And it can also own a corporation as well. The S-corp can invest into an LLC no matter whether it elects to be treated as a flow-through or whether it doesn't elect to be treated as a flow-through. That's correct. And that normally doesn't cause any problems if you're a U.S. resident taxpayer. If you have foreign investors into the LLC, so the S-Corp doesn't hold 100%, but just holds a percentage and the other percentage is held by foreign investors, then you do have a problem or not? Yes. Yeah, so, so the first problem is you can't have a non-U.S. individual ownership of an S-Corp or non, and you can't have a corporation on it. So you'll have blown up the S-Corp election because we want to avoid having a non-U.S. resident obtain a U.S. tax ID number and have to file a tax return with the U.S. to pay the tax on the flow-through income. We generally set up a blocker between The, the flow-through entity in the U.S. and the non-resident shareholder usually takes the form of a C-corp that's a blocker, and that's usually a much more efficient structure, and it, and it gets people over their unwillingness to have to get a U.S. tax ID number. You can't have foreign investors into an S-corp, but can the S-corp invest into a vehicle that has foreign investors? So, for example, can the S-corp invest into an LLC or into a C-corp that is also partly held by foreign investors? Yes. Yes, it can own an equity interest in a partnership or a corporation that are operating outside of the U.S. If the LLC is treated as a flow-through, and if one of the investors is a foreign entity, then the foreign entity, I understand, has to file a tax return in the U.S. Yes, yes, and... and That really speaks to making sure the geography of your blocker is proper. If an Australian sets up a U.S. corporation and that U.S. corporation owns a partnership interest, the partnership interest will flow up to the U.S. corporation. The U.S. corporation is responsible for the tax. It pays the tax. And the, the, the Australian shareholder merely steps back and, and watches their investment. If that same Australian shareholder had set up an Australian entity to hold the blocker, the Australian entity is deemed to be to have a trade or business in the US. And so now that Australian entity has to file in the US. And so it, it, it complicates the matter and makes things usually um, not what the investor wanted. I see. And if the Australian entity has to file a tax return in the US because they hold a direct interest in the LLC, do they have to declare their worldwide income or just the US sourced income? Uh, just the US sourced income. But one of the problems that we have is there's this principle called force of attraction. And so let's say I'm an Australian individual and I've, I've always been deriving investment income from the US, you know, and I've never really been doing 
I've never really had a trader business there, you know, and, and then all of a sudden I do start another entity that has a trader business there and it's actually operating in the U.S. They could put, push the operations of the two entities together and say, well, really both of these are, are trades or business in the U.S. And so we're going to treat them, you know, as, as, as though they're subject to the normal reporting rules in the U.S. instead of just withholding. So the risk is that if you had the LLC interest in individual names and you held some passive investments in the U.S., it would all be lumped together into one U.S. tax return. Yes, there's always that danger. Yes. If you have an Australian holding company that invests directly into the LLC, then the Australian holding company has to file a tax return in the US with their US sourced income. Let's assume that's just the LLC income. But that need to file a US tax return, that doesn't go down to the Australian trading entity and it doesn't go down to the ultimate shareholders. So if the ultimate shareholders have significant wealth that is also partly based in the US, given that there are two more entities between the ultimate shareholders and the LLC, the ultimate shareholders don't have to file a US tax return, correct? If everything is structured correctly in regard to their investment income, yes. I mean, the, the corporate entity should create a firewall that retains all of the U.S. trade or business that's been invested in, and only the legal entity that owns the ownership interest in it would be subject to reporting in the U.S. So that means it's only the blocker company, be it that you have a C-Corp in the U.S. that works as your blocker, or be it that you have an Australian holding or some holding, be it in the Cayman Islands or somewhere, you have a company somewhere else, only that company will have a filing obligation in the U.S., but it won't trickle through to ultimate shareholders. Yes, yes. And one thing we advise, though, if you do have a situation where you have a U.S. C-Corp as your blocker and it is owned by, say, an Australian corporation, usually there's going to be some transactions between the two. There might be an executive coming back and forth, etc. What we suggest is that the Australian corporation that owns the U.S. blocker do a minimal treaty-based uh, filing in the U.S. that says, hey, I may have been there in the U.S. I may have some transactions going on with another entity that I own in the U.S., but based on the Australian-U.S. tax treaty, I don't have any permanent establishment with the U.S. It's a very simple return. And the, the importance of it is it gets the statute of limitations to start running for the period of time that you that the Australian entity owned the U.S. corporation. And in the future, in an exit, when you're facing due diligence and they see people perhaps going back and forth and have a question of, well, how, how much business was Australia really doing in the U.S.? Having the statute started and perhaps expired by that time pulls everything but the last three years that are open to the statute of limitations off the table for investigation when due diligence comes up. The LLC has no filing obligation. Is that right? Or do they still have to file, but they just they just don't pay any tax? So if the LLC is treated as a partnership, they have to file a federal return and they also have to file a state return in every state that they operate in. Normally, to the extent that the entity has, let's say, operations in California, the partnership has operations in California, but a New York share, but a New York partner. California would withhold their taxes and send the New York partner a net amount. 
So the, the same analysis holds true if you have a C-Corp, you know, if, if your C-Corp blocker is not located in the same states where you have operations, it may result in some other state withholding. And so you want to coordinate these efforts and make sure that everything is consistent and you minimize all the, uh, the cash crossing a border and legal entities operating across border to minimize these withholding issues. This focus on state by state, that I can imagine would have worked well 50 years ago where it was very brick mortar and you either had a shop in a state and you were selling and trading in that state or had brick and mortar operations in that state or not. But nowadays, I think it's inc incredibly difficult. For example, let's say e-commerce, you have a website, you're trading over Shopify and you are selling into all states. Does that mean you have to file a state tax return in every single state where you might have sold something at some stage? There would be thresholds, wouldn't there? And they don't make things easy here. So you, you've got you've got 44 states that impose an income tax, but generally all 50 are going to impose some type of indirect tax on transactions. <laughs> and so it's really two different problems. You've got the income tax reporting, and then you have the indirect tax reporting. And the indirect tax reporting can really get people in trouble. Because if they're not familiar with the complexity, the liabilities can build up very quickly. And a lot of the penalties and interest are meant to be punitive because they, they want people to comply with them. Also, to the extent that you have U.S. employees in a C-suite, et cetera, if you're not mindful to these complying with these indirect tax obligations, they actually attach to folks who had the power to sign checks because the idea is, well, you're a scofflaw. You decided not to pay us and you had knowledge that you owed us money. And so I've seen many cases, uh, startups go under and perhaps the, the ex-CFO or maybe a temporary CFO be pursued individually for these indirect taxes under state law. So it's something you really want to get your, your arms around and make sure you understand. So with e-commerce, when you're trading in all 50 states, do you really have to then file tax returns in all 50 states or are there thresholds that you only have to do that when your income is over 150,000 US dollars or something? Correct, correct. So so different thresholds for income tax and in the indirect taxes, sales and use taxes, but in general, the sales and use taxes are the more aggressive of the two. And the sales and use taxes, instead of looking for you to have some type of physical presence within the state, now they look to economic nexus where your transactions with the state, your sales into the state, total 150,000 or more over a 12-month period, or you have a certain number of transactions with the state over a 12-month period. And then to add extra complexity to this, in some states, it's a rolling 12-month period, and in some states, it's a calendar 12-month period. And so it's quite a handful to, to get your arms around. Obviously, when we start working with someone will often come across a case where they've been operating in the U.S. for a couple of years. These items have not been addressed. The states want you to come forward and, and to get everything uh, back in line with what the legal requirements are. And so most of the states operate what they call a voluntary disclosure or amnesty program. And if you come forth and say, hey, we had a few years, we want to fess up and, and, and get current, they'll abate any penalties. They'll just charge you interest. And also the, on the look back period, in theory, you've never filed a statute of limitations. So if this is a 10-year problem, they could go back 10 years, but they'll generally be reasonable and say, we're only going to go back three or five years under one of these voluntary disclosure agreements. 
Reckenbeck. In the next update, US 8, let's look closer at LLCs and C-Corps. Which one would you use to expand from Australia into the US? Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update. 